This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcasting every Tuesday morning, 8 to 9, Pacific Time on KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. Political change doesn't always begin with a bang. It often starts with just a whisper. In his book, The Politics of Small Things, The Power of the Powerless in Dark Times, our guest today, Jeffrey C. Goldfarb, shows that from the discussions around kitchen tables that led to the dismantling of the Soviet bloc to the more recent emergence of Internet initiatives like MoveOn.org, consequential political life develops in small spaces where dialogue generates political power. Goldfarb is the Michael E. Gellert Professor of Sociology at the New School for Social Research in New York City. He is the author of seven books, including On Cultural Freedom, The Cynical Society, and Beyond Glasnost. Jeffrey Goldfarb, welcome to Weekly Signals. My pleasure. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty well. And you? Uh, I'm doing very well. Are we reaching in you in uh, New York? You are. All right. Very good. So uh, how is it there at the uh, the uh, New School for Social Research? Do you enjoy working there? Very much so. Yeah, it's a very special place. Good to hear. Now, what led you to write this book? What led you into the field of looking at the small things, uh, how people get together within politics? Well, there's, uh, um, I can describe this in a number of different ways. One is I had a student who... Uh, was actually inside the Bulgarian Round Table, which negotiated the transformation of change in Bulgaria. Her name is Raitza Piva, and uh, she wrote a dissertation on the topic and applied all sorts of very, very interesting theories on uh, kind of constitutional uh, law and uh, political factors, state factors, uh, and she didn't really talk about really what was most interesting that she saw directly, and that is how the way people spoke to each other at the round table itself opened and closed possibilities of transformation. So one um, um, you know, original motivation for it was actually to think about small things that led to the collapse of the Soviet Union. And the other was actually, um, I, uh, I am a New Yorker, and as I sometimes say, I uh, work in the shadow of the uh, World Trade Center. Mm-hmm. I lost a very dear friend in the tower, Michael Asher, uh, to which the book is dedicated. And uh, I was uh, in despair and looking for ideas about how we could uh, act in such a way as to... Um, Kind of address the problems we faced in uh, in the uh, after nine eleven, mm. and uh, was not particularly uh, pleased with the macro answers. So I started looking at uh, the small ways people were getting together, speaking to each other, and trying to develop uh, alternatives. And I actually was very impressed. And as you said, looking at places like MoveOn dot org, and uh, I guess MoveOn dot com. It's org. No, dot org. Right. Yeah. Excuse me. And uh, and meetup dot com and, uh, and became very very interested in the Dean campaign, and now I'm very interested in the Obama campaign. The way uh, both uh, major political campaigns actually le- linked to people in their daily lives through the internet. Very well then. Now, 
tell, talk a little bit about about nine eleven and what happened afterwards. How that might have affected you. And you talk about the the, the macro solutions. Uh, what exactly do you mean by that? What I mean by that is that um, you know there, there were two uh, kind of big responses to uh, uh, the attacks. Uh, one was to be um, very, very understanding of what happened, or trying desperately to understand what happened, to try to understand what led them to do this, what did we do uh, that motivated them to do this. And uh, uh, so the very critical leftist response, let's say. And uh, I, I think that a lot is to be learned by that, but the fact of the matter is is that uh, we were really attacked and thousands of innocents were killed, and it was a, a huge act of inhumanity, and I wanted to actually address that uh, not only in terms of the long-term uh, uh, history, but actually tried, wanted to understand uh, how, what led people to do that and, what, uh, and how we could respond to it. Uh, on the one hand, uh, so, so so the idea that you know explaining away uh, the, the problem or understanding the problem uh, to, a little bit too empathetically, I found um, uh, disheartening because it didn't actually address the tragedy at hand. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, the idea that we would fight a war on terrorism that would start in Afghanistan and as we have seen. Uh, has expanded to Iraq and other places, uh, also seemed to me to be uh, um, you know, really inappropriate. And uh, it was a macro response. We were attacked. This is a war. Uh, and we started looking for a war, in rel- relatively conventional terms, to actually uh, respond. And uh, I knew right away that this was uh, uh, not going to work. And I knew, and I was wondering, and and. Uh, the book is about it. I was searching for ways that actually people could respond to the challenge uh, more positively. Hmm. So, Jeff- I think that we still actually have to do. Yeah. So, so Jeffrey Goldfarb, then you're talking about the micro response. Yes. And how does that take form? Is this well? well it takes form uh, uh, in a variety of different ways. You know, uh, um, you know, one little piece of the book, which was actually an expansion of an op-ed piece I wrote uh, in 2002 in anticipation of the war in Iraq, uh, kind of, uh, I reflected upon a class I teach for the new school uh, uh, in special institutes on democracy, democracy and diversity in Cape Town, South Africa, and Krakow, um, Poland. And in these pay- places, um, the uh, you know, human rights activists, uh, uh, kind of sympathetic, Junior faculty, uh, senior senior uh, uh, graduate students who are interested in studying the prospects of democracy come, and uh, I'm rather convinced that in the discussions in our seminar uh, uh, seminars there, um, we were really addressing the problems not only theoretically but practically. That people of like minds were trying to figure out what to do. Uh, both, uh, you know, in the United States and in their home countries, which stretch from I- I- Indonesia to uh, Serbia. Well, I guess what I what I would like to know in terms of when you define the the sort of micro responses, are we we talking about principles? Are we talking about uh, concrete sort of actions? Are we talking about understanding and communication as part of this micro response? What what is what are sort well, of the, well, the means I, by you know, which? Yeah, we, one thing about my life is that 
through a series of accidents, good fortune and opportunism, uh, I, I became very involved in the movement that led up to solidarity in Poland and solidarity, the solidarity period, both above and below ground mm-hmm. in Poland. And one thing that I noticed was that, uh, you know, there, there was a question, you know, how were these people uh, actually... Uh, presenting an alternative to communism, to, to the regime that then existed, which seemed to be consequential, that which in the, you know seemed to be consequential at the time, and has proven to be very con- con- uh, uh, consequential after the fact. Mm-hmm. So, what is it that they were doing that actually allowed them, without any weapons, without any uh, support of state institutions or foundations, to actually um, undermine the foundations of an? empire. And it, it was a re- very simple thing. People decided to speak to each other openly. Mm-hmm. They started to organize themselves. So they spoke to each other openly with uh, uh, regularly uh, on, on schedule. So they would meet to have seminars. Or they'd meet to and they'd publish uh, underground newsletters or n- just, you know, little newsletters. Mm-hmm. And they, they, so they spoke in the words of Hannah Arendt, they spoke and acted in the presence of each other, and they developed a capacity to act together. Mm-hmm. And this capacity to act together is actually a kind of power. Mm-hmm. So, so I, I'm struck that uh, this communication, as you said, this uh, um, kind of coming together and communicating, and then basing action on those, that communicating, uh, whether it happens in uh, kind of a small apartment in Warsaw or it happens on a website, actually is a kind of power that um, um, it, uh, can be consequential. And the more than consequential, we have seen that it's a power that has to be reckoned with. So it's hard for us to remember, but uh, immediately after the 9-11 attacks, George Bush was very, very popular. <laughs> and people who wanted to say no... Uh, to what he was doing, were dismayed that uh, the Democratic Party was not presenting an alternative, and they were, and we were dismayed that the, uh, you know, the bulk of the media actually reported uh, events pretty much from the official point of view. And I thank uh, people such as the ones who met on MoveOn dot org, and uh, who you know formed the basis, the infrastructure of the Dean campaign for actually creating an alternative to make it legit, making it visible and uh, popular and ultimately very challenging. And the challenge, I think, which is now evident, is that um, you know we really have a, a, a political debate in this country between uh, those who um, are following the initial a militaristic reaction to the challenges that we face and those who question them and are seeking alternatives. We're speaking with Jeffrey Goldfarb. Uh, the book is The Politics of Small Things. Did you have something, Mike? Well, actually, I want to follow up on this, this point because it, it it sounds like we're talking about commonality of of purpose here in the sense that what you saw in Poland and what you see the, what you see here in America and the re- response, an alternative response to this militaristic uh, response to 9-11. Uh, 
there are certain things we're, are we talking about? We're talking about consensus building. We're talking about communication. And we're, we're talking about how does this turn itself into actual political force, if you will, a political perspective that, that begins to, to take some steps forward. Yes. And the question? Yeah, well, I guess <laughs> that is a question. At what point? I mean, what, we, there's, there's, I guess we're talking about a critical mass of people mm-hmm. that coalesce around something. Yeah, you know that that that's true. It it, it it is, you know, I in order for it to be a real societal challenge, there needs to be a contagiousness, and it needs to spread, and uh, these small things need to articulate with larger things, and uh, and then maybe we can have uh, a very very significant change. But these days, I'm actually working, doing a lot of work in Israel and the West Bank. Mm-hmm. And I observe the same thing. I observe people who, um, um, in an organization called the Parent Circle, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Palestinian-Israeli families, uh, bereaved families for peace. And these people actually, uh, the story of it is a very, very interesting story. I probably don't have enough time. Uh, uh, contrary to American stereotypes, they're in the organization slightly more Palestinian members than Israeli members. Mm-hmm. And they're dedicated to uh, uh, to uh, making sure that their personal loss isn't used for politics of retribution. Now, you know, will this change things uh, uh, in the battle between you know the Palestinian uh, uh, political organizations and the Israeli state? I'm not sure. I hope so. I don't know when, but. The very fact that these people are doing this, mm-hmm. uh, and there are a lot of them, and there are probably more people doing this than are involved in uh, terrorist activities, uh, actually changes the nature of uh, the political struggle in Israel-Palestine. So, you- so, so, so what I'm saying is that on the one hand, yes, in order for a major transformation to occur, the little things have to add up and become very big. But on the other hand, we shouldn't uh, 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 overlook the fact that the mere existence of people acting independently, working together for uh, uh, their own purposes and following their own ideals, is part of the social configuration, and it, it, cre- it changes the social world. So you seem to be saying, then, that the, the healthiest response to dark times is to to just simply communicate and do things in a small fashion. And, and to not- communicate, to do things small and large, but, but actually immediately to do things that are in front of you, yes. yes. This, this, this discussion reminds me, uh, to some degree, of the discussion that you hear with uh, the Green Party, as an example, mm-hmm. where there's been a struggle, an ongoing sort of ideological struggle within the Green Party movement in the United States. Is, are we a political party or are we a social movement? Mm-hmm. And that seems to be kind of the nexus of what you're describing here. They, they have so far been unable to resolve that, that, and I think it'll be an ongoing tension. But that's what we're, the heart of what we're talking about here is sort of, it starts with a social movement. Or where does it start? Is it start well, well, you know, I, 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 I think that it starts with human interaction. Yeah, 
yeah. and that the human action can lead to a social movement. And for the social movement to be successful, uh, uh, you know, we live with uh, big institutions, including the institutions of the state. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and parties uh, compete about uh, control of the institutions of the state. So the social movement uh, will be most successful if it is connected to uh, political party contestation. Mm-hmm. The, 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 the uh, argument I want to make is that for it to be significant, it doesn't have to move from social movement to political party. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, uh, political parties matter. So uh, as a Green person myself, uh, not a member of the Green Party, but very, very sympathetic uh, to the project, uh, um, I uh, uh, celebrate both those who want it to be a social movement and those who are, want to engage in more explicit party I politics. Just, I just want to ask you, from your perspective, given the circumstances, Given what's going on in the Middle East right now, mm-hmm. and particularly in, in Israel and, and the Palestinian territories, what is your sense of how how dark of times are we talking about? Are what do you see as the prospects for a reconciliation between the Palestinians and the Israelis? Well, I'll tell you when I look at the center stage, um, you know, uh, uh, there's nothing but despair. Yeah. The the, the uh, militarized logic. Uh, uh, that um, uh, uh, equates uh, armed resistance with political um, resistance and anti-terrorism and uh, uh, and militarized occupation with security um, is kind of a kind of a, a a process without any positive prospects and, and uh, a darkening process. But on the other hand, I think that what's really going on in Israel-Palestine has to do with how Israelis and Palestinians co- confront, interact, uh, work with each other. So that uh, one has to look very closely at the mechanics of the occupation. And if you look closely at the mechanics of the occupation, things may seem pretty, pretty bad. But on the other hand, things are happening at the points of interaction that actually point to alternatives. So so there are... um, you know, Palestinians somehow managed to organize their civil society to get on with their lives in a way that has uh, uh, um, a semblance of uh, dignity. And the fact that they can do that is something to pay attention to. Yeah. Uh, Israeli peace activists go to uh, um, uh, checkpoints and monitor what's going on and develop a complex relationship with the military and with the Palestinians. And in those interactions, you can actually see people working together in ways that uh, suggest that the situation isn't as dismal as it looks when you look from on high. On the other hand, when you look very, very closely, you also understand why the um, uh, various peace uh, 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 the peace process itself uh, uh, has been unsuccessful because it really matters what people are doing with each other. Yeah, I don't want to spend too much time on this. I just uh, when I think of that part of the world right now, the two things that come to mind that seem to be just the most damaging to the to this idea of reconciliation 
is what's going on in Gaza right now and the wall that has been constructed on the West Bank. And I, those are two, to me, I don't know where do you pull that Gordian knot apart right now because the situation in Gaza seems to be, it's turned into a very large prison. I don't know how, I don't know exactly describe it. They turn the power on and off and it's it's horrific. I don't know. Have you spent any time in Gaza at all? I haven't been in Gaza, no. I've been to the West Bank. Yeah. And, and, and yes, uh, you know, the situation looks incredibly horrible yeah. uh, from a distance. I, I, okay. I, my, my research project now is actually um, to work with uh, uh, Palestinian and Israeli scholars and yeah. international scholars and actually trying <laughs> to look very closely at what's happening to see uh, both the mechanics of the... Uh, of, um, of the um, kind of well, occupation and and resistance and um, um, and the possibilities for change and I, I, I'm look I'm not not yeah. I, what what I always do is I try to look closely and see if there's some basis for uh, hope yeah. and alternatives. It doesn't mean that I predict that there will be hope. Uh, there will there will be alternatives. That's the situation there right. looks pretty bad. Well, if there was ever a place where the politics of small things was in, an important part of the, what's going on, this is this certainly the case there. Well, I have to say that one of the surprising things for me is I, you know, I went there and I gave some lectures and not about there, and then people started pointing me to things to look at. I've been uh, uh, very, very pleased that uh, first Israeli scholars and now uh, quite a few Palestinian scholars have uh, um, uh, expressed interest in the project, just because they they, they sort of know intuitively that uh, it is in these very, very small dimensions that. Uh, alternatives, uh, successful resistance, uh, successful reconciliation uh, uh, may be worked out just because what's happening on the center stage is just so dismal. Uh, We're speaking with Jeffrey Goldfarb. The book is The Politics of Small Things. You said earlier that you were encouraged by the campaign of Barack Obama. And in in your book, you say that uh, you talk about the sense of hopelessness uh, that's addressed feebly on the left. Is is uh, that one of the reasons you're attracted to Obama because he speaks so highly of hope? Uh, yes, uh, I, I, I'm I, um, I'm a, a big supporter of Barack Obama. So you know, truth in packaging. Okay. Uh, uh, I I, I, um, uh, I am so because uh, I have a sense that there really is a social movement in America looking for alternatives. And I have a sense that actually uh, Obama, in his practical action as a community organizer, comes out of that movement. Uh, He's not a movement leader now. He's a politician. Uh, He's going to disappoint us. But I just have a a judgment that he's wise about how change can be constructed. In fact, my uh, paper I want to write, you know, as soon as I hang up, or right, you know, right now I'm working on a paper uh, on the politics of small things in Barack Obama. I, I think that there is something to be said for um, how social movements, what I call the politics of small things, articulate with the politics of the center stage, and I think that he really presents uh, opportunities for that. I think that we saw this configuration in uh, the Dean campaign, right. which is what I analyze in the book, right. uh, but uh, he wasn't such a skilled politician. You have the same relationship as with the Dean campaign and the Obama campaign, and now 
there is a skilled politician. Yeah, one not, one cannot help but be impressed by how this campaign has taken on what may be the most entrenched democratic establishment. is Hillary was as close to a incumbent candidate as you could get, and with a very formidable fundraising base and all the party apparatchik lined up with her. And he has come along and just really mopped up the field with her. So I, it, for me, it, it indicates a, an, a, an ability to attract good people, put them in the right place at the right time, and, and to be able, as you said, as a community organizer, it has all the markings of a community organization. See, you know, I, I live in Westchester, New York, and uh, I was in, uh, you know, uh, involved in uh, an Obama meeting in Chappaqua, which is the home of the Clintons. And uh, one thing that I found absolutely amazing was how, uh, you know, the Obama campaign was not focusing on Westchester and certainly not focusing on Chappaqua. And, uh, but people were uh, inventing alternatives uh, on the ground. And I think that, that uh, mm-hmm. and we did pretty well uh, in the congressional district. We ended up splitting uh, the delegates. And uh, uh, what impressed me was uh, that the Obama uh, uh, infrastructure is actually people interacting. Yeah. You know, they, you know, and and I met very very interesting people. Who, you know, who who uh, of great diversity, uh, uh, with very different uh, experiences and commitments. Yet they came together and they actually created a very impressive uh, political force. And, of course, that was, has been multiplied all over the country, uh, uh, so that even though I think it's been very, very impressive how much money he's raised, I think even more impressive is how uh, the campaign and the movement and people have actually created the force uh, um, that actually uh, far outshadows the you know, conventional political machinery of a party. Well, Jeffrey Goldfarb, thank you for ending on a positive note here. The, the, the book is The Politics of Small Things, The Power of the Powerless in Dark Times. Thank you for being here on Weekly Signals. It's my great pleasure. Thank you. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit NathanCallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Caspar. And this is Weekly Signals.